Hey everybody, Magnus here. <sighs> drama. The drama. You know, I try not to be territorial about things. You know, none of us podcasters really have a monopoly on anything. That's my view anyway. The only exception I really make to that is the big book series, but even that really isn't an absolute rule for reasons that are kind of too long to go into here. That said, there's a podcaster out there. And no, I will not name this person, not in public and not in private. But there's a podcaster out there who apparently needs to change his name to Trinus Magnus II or something because he clearly has a little bit of a man crush on me. It's a bit silly, really. Hijacking show ideas of mine, copying some of my turns of phrase, and some other stuff. Now, guys, I really went out of my way to be different from everybody else when I started this podcast up. I mean, shit, one reason I stopped talking about Star Wars on a regular basis was because I realized it was a little bit too similar to the Two True Freaks Star Wars monthly show. I rearranged my entire motherfucking format just to avoid being compared to others. It's petty. I shouldn't let it bother me, and I know all of this. But it pisses me right off to see some of my trademarks getting purloined by someone who clearly doesn't think I listen to his show. Guy, I know you're listening to this. I listen to your show. Knock it the fuck off. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I use every eighth episode of this show to talk about Smallville. But it wasn't always like that. Originally, the eighth episode was for talking about Star Wars, but like I said in my opening monologue, I realized that it was a little bit too similar to what the Two True Freaks do with their monthly Star Wars show, and maybe that didn't bother Scott and Chris, but it bothered me. So that was part of the reason, but 
Let's be real for a second. I love Star Wars movies, but I didn't really have as much to say about Star Wars comics and novels and shit as I originally thought. Yes, even I was caught a little off guard by that. What I realized, though, is I could use my eighth episodes to talk about Smallville, because I believe Smallville's awesome. It's my favorite live-action version of Superman, to be honest. And incidentally, that little opinion isn't as unpopular as it used to be. Or so I've noticed. Now, when I was going through the first three seasons of the show, which I typically refer to as Smallville Phase 1, but when I was talking about Smallville Phase 1, I received a lot of feedback from people letting me know how much they'd come to change their opinion about how awesome Smallville is. Now, whether or not I had anything to do with that, who knows? But nevertheless, that was the feedback that I got. Now, the first season of Smallville was a little uneven. There's really no getting around that. But mostly the first season is tons of fun, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. The primary issue going on in season one is how Clark instinctively became a hero. All by himself. He didn't need anybody to push him into it or tell him what to do. He just did it. Jonathan and Martha weren't there to speed Clark up. No. They were there to slow him down. There's a big bad world out there and Clark isn't ready for it yet. Not in season one. And you know what? Maybe the big bad world out there isn't ready for him yet either. So Jonathan and Martha always cautioned Clark to be careful, to not get hurt to not hurt anybody else, to never get caught, and bullshit like that. But they never told him that he had to go out there and save people. He already knew that he was supposed to do that. Clark had already decided what. Jonathan and Martha told him how. Now, Clark's judgment was mostly flawless during season one. But during season two, we started seeing cracks and flaws in Clark's thinking. He didn't always make the right choice. And a good example of that <clears throat> actually comes in Exodus, the season two finale, when Clark was so defeated by his own poor judgment and his own poor decisions that he ran away from Smallville. The mighty season three saw Clark making, in some cases, better decisions, yes, but what he learned during the mighty third season is that even when he did the right thing, bad shit still happened sometimes. Clark discovered that even doing the right thing can have consequences to it. And that just about brings us to the dreaded season four, which is the beginning of Smallville phase two. <sighs> Look, people, there's a lot to admire about Smallville Phase 1. Those first three seasons are absolute gold in several cases. But Smallville Phase 2 gets off to a pretty rocky start here with the dreaded Season 4. And I talked a bit about some of those reasons back in episode number 142, wherein I talked about Crusade, the dreaded fourth season premiere. One major thing that bugged me was Lana dating Jason Teague, a football coach at Smallville High School. Now, there's a real age difference between the two of them, and it's just inappropriate 
for a student to date a school teacher or a coach or whatever else. There's no justification for that, none whatsoever. And I've got personal reasons for having that opinion too, but if, if you want to hear me go through them, I recommend listening to episode number 142 because I'm not going to repeat all of that bullshit here. Anyway, another problem is that the dreaded fourth season is where Lana really became fucking unlikable, unbearable, even in a few cases. I mean, she has this weird just habit of just being a passive aggressive jackass for most of this. The dreaded season four. But there were a few good points to Crusade as an episode. I mean, it's a solid episode, and overall, it's got a lot of positive aspects to it. Very enjoyable, most of the time. If anything, I would submit to you that the immediate follow-ups to Crusade were even better. Gone wrapped up a lot of dangling plot threads that had been left over from the mighty third season, and also what was left over from Crusade. Facade, tons of fun. The A-plot is kind of high school, I know, but it's still a fun episode. Plus, it sets up a tiny little bit of adolescent rebellion on Clark's part. Rebellion isn't necessarily a bad thing. In this case, Clark decides to join the football team in defiance of Jonathan. Clark's starting to show a very strong independent streak. He does what he believes is right. Clark suffered when he's done the right thing, and he suffered when he's done the wrong thing. So I submit to you that Clark's view of the matter right now is that he'll err on the side of doing what he believes to be the right thing. He's prepared to live with his choices. The reason this is significant is because it touches on major conflicts that Clark and Jonathan had back in the first season episode, Hothead. Superficially, Clark's making the same exact decision in facade to join the football team. But the difference though is Clark's ready to accept the consequences for his behavior in facade, whereas he really wasn't back in hothead. He's not just rebelling for the sake of doing it. He's doing it because he believes it's right. And in the end, joining the football team enables Clark to save the day in an episode that we're gonna be talking about in just a few minutes. Clark wouldn't be able to do the things that he does in Jinx if he hadn't joined the football team. Clark still suffers for his decisions, though. In Devoted, Clark gets put through the ringer by his own team and by his own coach. He has to earn his place on the team. He can't expect to get it for free. But Devoted as an episode also touched on Chloe's still unresolved feelings for Clark. And Clark friendzones her so fast it makes her head spin. Chloe was maybe a little jealous after seeing how flirty and googly-eyed Clark and Lois were with each other at the end of Facade. And so because of that, it's not really that big a stretch, really at all, to believe that Chloe, that she would have made her move and devoted with or without being drugged by that kryptonite love potion number nine. Run was yet another strong episode. It put Clark in the position of having to ride herd on Bart Allen. Frankly, this might have been a little harder to believe in if Clark hadn't already shown that he has leadership and authority qualities in Facade and then in Devoted. In Run, Clark took a character who was on a very bad path and gave him a better direction. This is going to come back to visit Clark in the future in largely positive ways. 
Clark did good things for Bart, and it's going to make a huge impact when all's said and done. After Run is arguably the most important episode of this entire dreaded season. Which is to say, Transference. Clark not only did positive things for Bart Allen and Run, but he did some amazingly positive things for Lionel in Transference. Now, it's going to take a while before the full ramifications of Transference as an episode really set in, but big shit was set up just in the closing moments of that episode, and it's not, it's not hyperbolic to say that Lionel Luther will never be the same again after Transference. Now, a second ago I said that Smallville Phase 2 got off to a pretty rocky start because the dreaded Season 4 is the start of Smallville Phase 2, and the dreaded Season 4 is pretty fucking rocky. I once said that the time was coming when you guys would hear me rip some episodes to shit, and sadly enough, that begins right here in this very retrospective that you're listening to right now. The shows that we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes are partly why I call this the dreaded season four because the dread starts right here this dreaded season started on a very strong note and it gave all of us watching these episodes as they came out the sense that this entire season would be a worthy successor to the mighty season three and unfortunately this dreaded season is no match whatsoever for the mighty season three Every major problem the dreaded season 4 has starts blossoming in the very shows that we're going to be talking about this time around. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to begin the discussion about the dreaded season 4 starting with episode 7, Jinx, after these messages. in need of some relaxation? Is the pressure getting to him? Well then, we've got great news for you. Here at Magnus Doggy Brothel, we have over 1,000 bitches in heat to help your dog relax. For just $300, your little guy can get the happy ending you only wish that you could get. We have all different kinds of breeds to satisfy your furry roommate. Labradors for those who need some all-American love. Shizu for those who prefer something a bit more exotic. Why, we even have Doberman Pinchers if anybody likes it rough. And this weekend, we're offering a discounted special. Two bitches at the same time. And this won't cost you a million dollars either. Get two for the price of one for your studly pet. So, bring your furry buddy to Magnus Doggy Brothel. Our facilities are licensed for the finest and doggy pleasure that you'll ever find. Why, just check out all the rave reviews we've gotten on Yelp. Magnus Doggy Brothel. 
Because a bang is always better than a whimper, right? Right? Am I right? Enter at your own risk. Patent pending. Magnus Doggy Brothel is a subsidiary of Demonzo Happy Ending Ventures. Not responsible for loss or injury. Subject to terms and conditions. Void where prohibited. Hi, it's John Glover. Welcome to the Smallville Retrospective. I hope you guys have a good time and learn a lot about all of us. Continuing my look back at the dreaded fourth season of Smallville. There's a lot of stuff to sort through here, and not all of it's very good either. In fact, most of it isn't so good. You see, right about here is pretty much where the dreaded season four becomes dreaded. Up to this point, I've talked mostly about what you might call the best parts of the dreaded fourth season. But that's all in the past. The shows we're talking about this time around are some of the very worst that the dreaded season four has to offer. But at least it's not total crap right up front. Nope. This time out... We're starting off with Episode 7, Jinx. Mikhail Mixes Pidlick comes to town to win at gambling by using his power to control other people to determine the odds and then collect the profits. So, alright then, let's, let's get the obvious controversy out of the way. Mikhail Mixes Pidlick has exactly jack shit to do with the character from the comics. Smallville's taken minor liberties with some comic book characters up to this point, and God knows it'll take other liberties in the future, but Mixes Pitalik's the unforgivable one. This is the one that's beyond redemption. At least, that's what the haters all tend to believe, anyway. Now, me? I didn't think so when this episode aired, and I certainly don't think so now. I see an escape hatch that would both validate the events of this episode, which, in the larger scheme of things, are as worthy of canonization in the Smallville storyline as any other episode, and at the same time, it would preserve what Mixes Pitalik is supposed to be. And somewhere, I think Jeff Johns and Alan Moore would probably approve of my methods. Here's my idea. Basically, it's known that Mikhail's ancestors abandoned their village and changed their last name from Kiltip Zixum to Mixes Pitalik. So, all you have to do is reveal that their name was uh, Kiltip Zixum because centuries ago, a certain imp from the fifth dimension thought it'd be funny if he persuaded some ancient people to change their name to his name in reverse. And when they left the village... They changed it again to Mixes Pitalik 
to shame their pseudo-namesake. There's your original Mixes Pitalik, Hoss. I honestly don't care, though. I enjoy the comic book version of Mixes Pitalik, but I've never really been a huge fan. If Mikhail Mixes Pitalik is as close as the Smallville universe were to ever come to using Mixes Pitalik, I'd be okay with that. But if the show, or for that matter, the ongoing comic book, had gone with a more traditional version, I'd have been okay with that too. But whatever, it really means nothing to me. Nothing at all. Anyway, other stuff. Both Chloe and Lex, didn't, uh, they didn't bet on Smallville High so much as they bet on Clark Kent. And I've always found that kind of interesting. And in fact, you know what, now that I think about it, maybe that should have gone into the deeper themes and implications. Speaking of which, deeper themes and implications. There's really not a whole lot here, but what we do get is pretty cool. For starters, Chloe was so pissed off at Clark at the end of Transference that she couldn't even see straight. But between Clark at least attempting to apologize in that episode, along with his more civil behavior here in Jinx, not to mention helping take, uh, take down Mixes Pitalik, Chloe's come around, and so she's decided to forgive him. Now, it's tough to know where exactly Lana is on this, because, once again, her storyline related to this whole witch thing has completely isolated her from the rest of the cast. What little interaction she does have with Clark here in Jinx revolves mostly around blaming him for Jason losing his job and getting fired from uh, his position as an assistant coach at Smallville High. Speaking of which, let's talk about that. It's clear that Lex is the one who alerted the school administrators about it. You pretty much have to believe that they take action immediately and fire Jason right away. Now, I recounted my experience with student-teacher fuck affairs in the first episode of the dreaded season 4 retrospective, and so there's probably no need to dig that all back up again. But what I'll say is that in all of those cases that I outlined in my little rant, my school responded very slowly. And that's if they reacted at all. Now, granted, mine was one high school and one tiny little hick town at one point in time. I'm just saying that if my school had acted as quickly as Smallville High does here, I probably would have been less obnoxious in part one of my dreaded season four series. That's all I'm saying. Anyhow, the fact that Lana assumes Clark's guilt tells us that Jason probably didn't mention that he ran into Lex at the Smallville Hospital back in Facade, which is when Lex put two and two together all by himself. Secrets and lies! Secrets and lies! But still, on that basis, it's logical for Lana to assume Clark's the guilty party here. Except that his demeanor and conversation clearly indicate he had no idea what had happened. And really, that should have cast a lot of doubt on his guilt, but whatever. 
It's a chance for for Lana to act like a bitch and push Clark around, so she goes for it. Of course she does. Still, what's interesting here is that Lex never even tries to claim that he did all, that he did all of this and tipped off the school out of out of some kind of morality or for that matter even a sense of loyalty to Clark. As a matter of fact, Lex never explains why he did it. As Michael Bailey has said before about other stuff, this is Chekhov's gun, people. Something big's getting getting set up here. Now, my policy has been to spoil the hell out of season four, the dreaded season four. I don't care about protecting future plot points that unfold during the dreaded season four. But this business about Lex and Lana goes way beyond this season, so I'm keeping my mouth shut for now. The revelation, though, is completely predictable. Again, I'm not going to spoil it here because it takes place after the dreaded season four, like I say, but come on. It doesn't take a huge brain trust to figure out what the deal is here. And other stuff. Jonathan opposes Clark's decision to go back out on the field after the accident at the, at the start of the episode where Clark pretty much runs over a member of the opposing team and broke his collarbone in the bargain. Jonathan hasn't been overly supportive of Clark's decision to play football this dreaded season, but this is the first time he's actively discouraged it. Again, if this was season one, Clark could take it lying down, maybe brood about it for a while, but ultimately decide Jonathan's right. But not this time. Here in Jinx, Clark thinks about what Jonathan said for a minute, and then says that he's had to control his powers every day of his life, even doing the most ordinary and mundane of situations, opening and closing doors, shaking people's hands, giving them hugs, everything. It's never out of Clark's mind what he could do to somebody if he isn't careful. But he is careful. The collision at the beginning of Jinx wasn't Clark's fault. On top of that, he has to go out on the field. His teammates are counting on him. Chloe needs him to smoke out Mixia's Pitalik, and who knows? Clark may have to rescue somebody on the field. In other words, Clark faces responsibilities and moral decisions. Jonathan has no vocabulary to understand. And Clark tells him so. He makes no effort to expand on that. And then he joins up with his team out on the field. This is another of Superman's defining traits. He not only knows what the right thing to do is, but he does it. Quickly and efficiently. Clark doesn't belittle Jonathan's point of view. He simply expresses his own point of view, and then he does what he believes is right. That is what Superman's all about. Maybe it was a mistake for Clark to join the football team in the first place, but he can't back down now. Lives are at stake. This is, about, this is not about Clark's personal glory. Not anymore. It's about shutting down one of the biggest threats Smallville's ever faced. The other thing going on here, though, is that this ties back to Jonathan's conversation with Clark back in Facade from earlier this dreaded season, wherein 
Jonathan said that joining the football team was a decision that Clark made all by his lonesome. That means that the consequences of it are all on him. What we're seeing here in Spell is a fulfillment of that. Clark made the choice to join the team all by himself, and that much is true. And the reason Clark joined the team was because he wanted a piece of a normal teenager's life as much as possible. At least as much of one as he could get. But Jonathan said the consequences of that are Clark's issue to deal with. And this is him dealing with those consequences. There's no way Clark could have predicted he'd find himself getting blackballed by Mix's, uh, Mix's Piddalick. Nonetheless, that's the hand he's been dealt. Clark realizes that quitting the team is now officially not an option. People's lives are at stake. And there's that to think about. Clark has to be there to rescue innocent people whenever he can. The other thing, in the grand scheme of things, is maybe a little bit of a smaller matter, though. But it's still worth mentioning. The truth is that the town of Smallville is counting on Clark to win. His team's counting on him. His coach is counting on him. Those are smaller considerations compared to, you know, people dying and stuff, but those are still legitimate considerations for him. He can't just ignore all of his responsibilities here. Clark's getting nailed on all sides by those responsibilities, and he's well aware of the pressure on him to succeed. He rises to the occasion with ease, too. No, uh, no nerves. No whining. No teenager bullshit. Clark cowboys up and decides to win the game, beat Mixes Pitalik, and save Chloe. That is stuff Jonathan can't relate to. That is why Clark made those decisions without consulting him. What we're seeing here is Clark realizing that he's moved into territory where Jonathan and Martha can't quite guide him as much as they used to. Not anymore. And understand, it's not that Clark has just moved there. He's always been there. Ever since the first season, Clark's found himself in situations his parents can't relate to. Uh, he's experienced things they can never understand. And by itself, this is nothing new. What is new is that Clark recognizes the fact that he's walking this path alone. Jonathan and Martha can keep him grounded. They can, they can help him keep his perspective in check, but at the end of the day, Jonathan and Martha can't really guide him in these decisions. They've given him a foundation to work from. They've imparted a specific worldview onto Clark, but at the end of the day, there's a limit to what they can do and when they can do it. In the crucial moment, Clark has to make his own decisions as best he can. Clark now realizes that, and so does Jonathan. Now, Goff and Miller said that the dreaded fourth season would be defined by Clark maturing and growing into himself a little more, acting in a slightly more independent way. And I gotta think that they were, they were thinking of moments like this from Jinx, where Clark has to carry all the weight of his town, his school, and his teammates' expectations, and save people's lives in the process. What I'm saying here is this whole sequence works for me in so many ways on so many levels. Now, 
Moving on to other stuff, another point of interest here is 33.1. It'll be a long time before this gets explained by Goff and Miller, but they do have a plan here. Or at least an idea, anyway. And this isn't incidental stuff. Now, it's no spoiler to say that we're never going to see Mixes Pitalik again in the run of this show. But we haven't heard the last of 33.1. Not by a long shot. As far as smaller notes, there's some controversy about Jinx when it first aired, specifically about Smallville's product placement deal with Old Spice. You see, apparently TV show and movie production companies aren't supposed to supplement their budgets by working out deals with other companies to feature their products. Or hell, maybe this was part of a larger deal ha uh, that, that was hammered out by the WB and Miller Goff Inc. had to roll with it as best they could. Either way, I've never understood why people lost their shit over this. But I sure hope they were equally upset about Cheerios, Timex watches, Coca-Cola, and other product placement in Superman the movie. I mean, they are, aren't they? Surely they hold Smallville and Superman the movie to the exact same fucking standard, right? Surely they don't overlook supposed problems like this with Superman the movie out of some kind of fucked up blinded nostalgia, right? Anyway. Different now. At one point, Mixus Pitalik uses his power to force Clark to choke. What's not clear in all this is whether this version of Clark actually needs to breathe air in order to live, or if he's more like the pre-crisis Superman who didn't need to breathe air, thanks to his powers. Mixus Pitalik could have robbed him of his air supply, but it's also possible that he just forcibly induced Clark's natural gag reflex. What I'm saying is, it's not clear. It doesn't hurt the episode, and it really doesn't help it either. It's just not clear, that's all I'm saying. Another minor note is that there are several close-ups of Mixus Pitalik during the championship game. To Mixus Pitalik's left is a blonde extra, and it's, it's tough to explain why, but she calls a lot of attention to herself, or maybe it's just that she's more noticeable to me for some reason. I don't know why. It's like that sometimes. You see a TV show or a movie or something and some extras just catch your eye for some reason. I don't know why. But the same thing happens in a second season episode of Lois and Clark when Superman accidentally injures a wannabe guitar player and then he has to meet up with a series of lawyers about it. Now, it was either Frank Gorshin or Ben Stein. I forget which, but there's a moment when an extra walks up behind Dean Kane, runs her finger over his back, and she just keeps on walking. Now, at the moment that it happens, Dean Kane even turns to give her this look like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? But she's already leaving the frame. And so, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow, nobody noticed that except Dean Kane. And so because of that, it's in the final version of that episode. Anyway, for some reason, that moment always catches my eye too. So anyway, that's basically it. As with all episodes uh, so far, Jinx is just a fun and relatively lighter episode than most of the Mighty Season 3. 
So Goff and Miller's new philosophy of less gloominess and darkness has really taken root. And I guess this is just another fun and enjoyable episode. And then we get to episode eight, Spell. And this is where the dreaded season four gets completely fucking derailed. Spells where the dreaded, the, uh, dreaded season four starts becoming the dreaded season four. I'll start with the good, though. Way back in Perry from the Mighty Season 3, Clark learned that his power comes from the sun. He came to understand that he's powered by solar energy. So therefore, the solar flares in that episode played all kinds of havoc with his powers. Similarly, here in Spell, Clark discovers that he's every bit as vulnerable to magic as anybody else. His powers afford him no protection, none whatsoever. Now, by this point in the show, Jonathan and Martha have seen some pretty weird shit. They've met people who are bulletproof, they've seen the inside of spaceships, their hometown's been pelted with meteor rocks, and that's just the pilot episode, people. But they're both pretty skeptical about magic. At first. But after giving it some thought, I guess they decide that between super-powered aliens and glowing green rocks, maybe magic is par for the course after all. Something else. All evidence to the contrary, Tom Welling actually can dance. At least, that's what Allison Mack says. So, take that for whatever you think it's worth, but no more than what you think it's worth. I don't run a, a, a rip-off podcast, after all. Now, in terms of other other stuff, Lois comes back for this episode, and under the circumstances... It makes sense. It's logical enough. It's Chloe's birthday, and it's not like Lois is in another state altogether anymore. So, it seems logical that Lois would attend Chloe's birthday party. Even so, at the time, I was a little bit reluctant about Lois coming back to the show. I felt like her original arc this season so perfectly set up Lois and Clark's relationship later on in their lives that bringing her back now just felt like tempting fate to me. Now, I don't want to sound superstitious or anything, but, I mean, look at it from my point of view here. I mean, I felt like Goff and Miller got very lucky bringing Lois to Smallville in the first place. She's not actually supposed to meet Clark, quote-unquote, until much later on. Depending on which version of the Superman myth you're reading, anyway. But Goff and Miller found a way to make it work beautifully for their story. They made it work one time. And so because of that, a second time around with Lois just felt like an unnecessary risk to me. And let's be honest here for just a second. Spell, as an episode didn't exactly prove me wrong about any of that. Erica Durant's was as enjoyable as ever playing Lois. You know, don't misunderstand me. She's always welcome as far as I'm concerned. But that's how I feel now. But back when Spell first aired, I just didn't see the wisdom of it. 
And the final product did absolutely nothing to make me want to change my mind. But like I said, Durant's did a great job. She's got great comic timing. And it's always a blast to see her. I, I guess maybe my problem is I just wish that she could have come back to the show under better circumstances. That's all. Along the same lines, I was surprised at how seemingly easy it was for Kristen Kruk to play a different character. I've said a few times that I've been guilty of underestimating Kristen Kruk as an actress on previous occasions, but every now and then, she finds a way to prove me wrong. Isabel's an aggressive, powerful, and overconfident type of character. And Kruk brings all those qualities across with what looks like not very much effort. Another thing going on here was the moment when Isabel the Witch curses Lex to play that shoe bear piece on the, on the piano for forever. There's a really creepy moment when Lex is found later on. He's been playing the piano for so long by that point that his fingers are bleeding and he can't stop playing. It's just creepy and it's menacing and it just, it works really well. In case it wasn't obvious, I'm running out of good things to say, so... Ah, hell, let's just get it over with. The problem here with Spell is that it's a major, stylistic departure from what's come before. The transition from the fun and light adventures that we've had up to now, to this way over-the-top festival of absurdity is... It's just a... It's too big a bridge to cross. Now, Jinx was written by Stephen S. DeKnight, a Buffy alumnus. Now, maybe it's wrong for me to say this, but Spell feels like this could have been an, an idea for a second season episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There's just way too much magical whoozy what's going on. And you know what? It's not that it's unwelcome. It's just that it's too big a break from what's come before. Plus, that, that whole fetishy S&M thing that the witches wear, it just bothered me. Now, don't get me wrong. All of the actresses were over 18 when they shot this stuff, so, so that much I'm okay with. I guess more what bothers me is that two of the three characters here are high school students, no matter what age the actresses are. I'm just not really okay with that or the S&M overtones of some of the sequences. Does that make sense? I mean, these are supposed to be teenage girls. Anyway, just, it bothers me, so... Deeper themes and implications. As you can guess, there's really not much to choose from this time out, but... Even so, there's still kind of a neat moment where, like I said before, Isabel the Witch drops in on Luther Mansion. Isabel asks for a bottle of wine for Chloe's birthday party, and for his part, Lex has to be talked into doing it. Keep in mind, though, when Tom Welling's Lionel swung by Lex's office back in Transference, as far as Lex knew, Clark was helping himself to some scotch. And Lex had no objection to that whatsoever. But Isabel the Witch has to flirt a little bit with Lex in order to get him to change his mind. 
It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Other stuff. As I see it, there are there really are three issues going on with Lana visiting Clark in the barn later on. First, Crook and Welling start the conversation with playful dialogue. Nothing snarky or sarcastic or anything like that. They It's just that they don't usually have such snappy dialogue like this and it was it was a nice little change of pace for those two. It was just, I guess my point is, it was, I, it was just, it was nice to see him just kind of shoot the shit for a little while before getting into heavier subjects. At which time, the awkwardness returned. Second, though, Lana exonerates Clark for having Jason fired. And she says that she should have known that he wouldn't do that. What's interesting, though, is that Lana admits fault in all of this. She says that she shouldn't have doubted Clark, but she doesn't actually apologize for her actions, if you're paying attention. Finally, Lana shows Clark the tramp stamp tattoo that she's got on her back. She asks Clark if he knows what the symbol means, and really, Clark's got no choice but to lie about it and say that he has no idea. Now, he wants to tell her the truth. It's obvious. But telling her the meaning of the symbol? Well, that's just too big a can of worms, now isn't it? So he keeps his mouth shut. I mention this because Lana never told anybody about her tramp stamp, even when it might have helped her. She kept it a secret for absolutely no reason. Clark's keeping a secret, though, because telling the truth could lead to spilling the beans about other things. It helps him to keep all this under his hat, even if it doesn't immediately or obviously help Lana. Of course, there's a chance it could save her, her life later on down the line, but that's just conjecture on my part. Anyway, Spell, as an episode, is almost completely about the A plot. There's really not too much of a... Uh, when, it, when it comes to B and C plots to hash through. When it comes to spell, what you see is what you get. That's all you get. Spell's climax is a neat little moment, though. Clark grabs a shotgun and confronts the witches in the Kawachi Caves. Now, keep in mind, they'd already beaten the shit out of Clark before this. They'd even drained his powers but he still tries to keep them from getting the crystal of fire for their own purposes. That was desperation on Clark's part. He didn't know what else to do, so he grabbed a shotgun and drove to the caves. But the crystal of fire restores Clark's powers in an instant. That's when Clark decides to stop fucking around. During the first battle with the witches... Clark was very passive, and he tried to use reason to get through to whatever was left of Lana, Chloe, and Lois. He doesn't do that in the showdown in the cave, though. Instead, he hits him where it hurts. He uses his heat vision to destroy Isabel's little spell book. The girls return to normal after that. Now, what we have here is an example of Clark refining his tactics when he's confronted with changing circumstances. 
he's used to going up against opponents with superhuman powers. He'd never tangled with anybody with paranormal abilities before, and he was caught completely off guard by it. But once he had his powers back, he didn't waste any time. He melted the spell book, and that was the end of it. Now, I say all of that because this is a very Superman thing to do. When Superman's faced with unexpected circumstances, he modifies his tactics as much as necessary in order to win. Sometimes this takes a while, and obviously Clark's on a major learning curve in Smallville, as a show in general, and Spell in particular, but the point is, once he knew what the witches could do, he didn't fuck around once his powers came back. He, he, he took the witches out as quickly as he could without using brute force, since, let's face it, that probably wouldn't work on them. This is a case of Clark adapting and evolving his battle techniques. And let's cut the shit. Even an adult Superman would struggle against paranormal opponents. So I think we can go easy on Clark for not taking down full-blown witches during his coffee break. This is the second time in as many episodes where Clark has to, de has to develop his own battle tactics in the face of unusual and unpredictable circumstances. Back in Spell, Clark defied Jonathan by... Or sorry, back in Jinx, I should say. Clark defied Jonathan by playing in the big football game because lives were at stake. Clark's the only one who could have made that decision. So he made it. And he had to make it all on his own. Here again, we see Clark rushing into action when he's facing a threat only he knows about and only he knows how to deal with. And this is good character development for Clark. Throughout the run of the show up to now, Clark's been pretty reactive. Passive, even. But one of the few positive things I can say about the dreaded fourth season is that it's starting to become a little more common for Clark to recognize a threat and then take action on his own without consulting the Kent committee first. There are times to include Jonathan and Martha in his decision-making process, but Clark's beginning to understand that there are also times when he's got to act on his own. Here in Spell, it means acting without the Kent's approval. Back in Jinx, it meant acting in spite of their disapproval. Clark's growing up, and he's beginning to make decisions of his own. And this is good character growth for him. Now, as I recall, fan reaction to Spell ranged from gentle mockery to outright fucking hostility. It'd be fair to say that this episode didn't have very many admirers, at least among the online groups with whom I associated when this episode first aired. What's disturbing to me, though, is that 5.5 million people tuned in to watch Spell. People? That's about half a million more viewers than the episode before Spell and the episode after Spell. Now, conventional wisdom has it that this witch storyline turned off a lot of people. They just didn't care for this storyline. And as I've said before, reality and Nielsen ratings tell a very different story. 
As much as I'd love to believe that Spell pissed everybody off, that doesn't seem to be the case. And understand, I don't like the witch stuff either. Okay? I am not defending it or justifying it. Because how the hell could I? My only point is that I may hate it, and you may hate it, but it can't really be argued that people in general hated it, because the witch episodes tended to be the most highly rated episodes of this entire fucking dreaded season. Episode 9. Bound. Lex has had one-night stands with a bunch of different women over the years, and so one of them frames him for murder. Meanwhile, Lana has a dream about Isabel the Witch meeting some old lady, and then the next day that very same old lady shows up at the Talon, and she just so happens to be Jason Teague's mother. <sighs> Honestly, this episode's always bothered me. Spell was the first episode of Smallville where I just didn't like the main premise, but I can at least acknowledge that it carried on the slightly more fun and carefree tone of the dreaded season four so far, at least in some ways. Bound, though, is the first episode to somewhat break away from all of that. Further, the episode attempts to argue a moral point. Problem is, I have no fucking idea what that point is. Or at least, I don't understand what it's based on. We're told that Lex has done the hibbity-dibbity with a lot of different strangers. We're also told that such a thing is bad, and thus Lex is bad for having done it. The problem is, nobody explains why this is bad. Don't get me wrong. I can think up several reasons why one-night stands are bad. The problem is, the show touches on none of those reasons. They just say it's bad, and then they leave it at that. Now, I'll be honest. There are circumstances where I, I'd probably be willing to overlook all that. My Smallville fandom is like that sometimes. I'll admit it. The problem, though, is that this is the very same season where a high school student is shown dating a high school football coach and none of that is thought to be a big deal. So, if a high school chick dating an authority figure at her school is fine and dandy, as it seems to be, how's Lex nailing everything on two legs somehow bad? At least, the, the very, you know, the very least I can say for all of them is that Lex's conquests, they were at least all over the age of consent. Plus, there's no suggestion that Lex forced himself on anybody who wasn't willing. Lex wanted it. His one-night stands wanted it. So what's the problem? Understand, I'm not advocating one-night stands. I never have, and I never will. But if you're going to vilify something, you owe it to the audience to explain why it's a bad thing, and Bound never does. Instead, a lot of viewers came away from this thing confused because, like me, they probably think there are worse things you can do to somebody than give them an orgasm. 
and I kind of count myself among them. I just don't see how Lex victimized anybody here. Still, there are a few golden nuggets in this episode. For one thing, this is the first chance we get to see the beginning of Lionel turning over a new leaf. Again, it's not a spoiler to say that we've seen Lionel Luther at his most evil in the Smallville universe. His repentance and his change of heart, these are all genuine and permanent, even if they're not always absolute. Clark, though, is skeptical, at least at first. So much so that he refuses to shake Lionel's hand because the last time those two were in close physical proximity to one another, back in transference, Lionel used the stone to trade bodies with him. Still, that very experience is what transformed Lionel into the guy who met Clark at the prison and gave him a lot of useful pointers to find the guilty parties who framed Lex. Again, won't spoil anything that's still to come after this dreaded season, but suffice it to say, this marks the beginning of Lionel and Clark entering a whole new phase of their relationship. Throughout season two, Clark was, he was just a kid that Lionel thought was a little bit interesting. In the mighty season three, Clark was a target. But starting here in the dreaded season four, Clark is going to be something else to Lionel. Chloe's skeptical about Lionel's conversion too, but she's not the only one. Martha and Jonathan don't buy it either. In fact, Jonathan openly doubts that Lionel Luther's changed anything. This is one of the rare times when Clark bucks up against Jonathan's morality. And understand, Jonathan Kent is the architect of Clark's moral universe. In seasons 1, 2, and Mighty 3, Jonathan Kent's judgment was absolute as far as Clark's concerned. Jonathan says it, Clark believes it, that settles it. But that was then. This is now. Clark knows in his gut that Lionel's changed and nobody can talk him out of it. Not even Jonathan. And that's a big deal. The final Lionel skeptic that we see in, uh, in Bound is Lex, when he pays Lionel a visit in prison. Lex makes it clear that he's not buying what Lionel's selling. And in this case, what Lex is specifically turning his back on is the chance for Lionel to truly be his father. And this is where we reach part of the significance of Lionel's rehabilitation. Lex and Lionel have always been on opposite sides. Not just of each other's conflicts, but on separate moral sides. We may not have always seen it, but Lionel was always a monster. For Lex to oppose Lionel, he has to be Lionel's opposite. So as much as he could, Lex tried to be a saint. Now, True, there were times when he fell far short of the mark. But he tried. Now that Lionel's on the other side, morally speaking, the more saintly side, the animosity between father and son continues. And so, for Lex to continue opposing Lionel, Lex has got to have a different morality 
from Lionel. Lionel's conversion is just another in a growing list of incentives for Lex to go to the dark side. Apart from all of that stuff, though, trying to think of a polite way to put it, Freud would have had a field day with Lex's choice of women and why he's interested in them. Basically, Lionel's noticed that most of the women that Lex has had the hots for over the years have been brunettes. Just like Lillian Luther, Lex's mom. Of course, the problem here is that Lillian wasn't a brunette. She was a redhead. Some strange discontinuity there, but there it is. Small potatoes, though. But anyway, the point stands. Basically, Lex has a pretty fucking twisted attraction to women who remind him of his mom. Oddly enough, though, this isn't the creepiest sexual impulse that is implied during this dreaded season. Normally, I'd spoil it since I don't give a damn about spoiling stuff this dreaded season, but this little secret's worth waiting for, put it that way. Besides, I only want to talk about it once, because that's all I can stomach. Anyway, another bit of business here is Clark and Chloe teaming up. You need to remember, this is an ensemble show, so it's tradition for Clark and Chloe to solve mysteries together. But Clark did an impressive amount of legwork on this one. He just needed help looking up the owner of the car, and that's where Chloe came in. In fact, their scene together in the torch is illustrative of the difference in worldview that's starting to creep in between Clark and Chloe. Clark sees good in people, even people like Lionel when, when they prove themselves. Chloe's skeptical, though. She won't put trust in Lionel, at least not right away. And to be fair to her, she's got more bad blood to get past with Lionel Luther than almost anybody. Except maybe Lex. And speaking of Lex, he doesn't exactly buy into Lionel's new attitude about life either. Even though Lionel's the only reason Lex didn't end up in prison himself. Now, apart from all that stuff, there's a funny little moment when Lex is confronted by Shannon, the real killer. She lets down her hair, takes off her glasses, and says, What are you doing? What's wrong, Lex? Don't you recognize me? You either see the Superman reference there, or you don't. This next bit's interesting, maybe only to me, but this is the 15th time that Clark's worn his blue t-shirt, red jacket combo. Only the 15th time in Smallville's entire run up to this point. And this is the first time that he's worn it this season. Now, apart from all that, and I guess kind of speaking of which, there's a pretty neat little moment when Clark rescues Lex from Shannon. He knocks her out and then creates a vacuum effect in Lex's office using his jacket uh, and basically smothers the fire at super speed. It's pretty brief, but it's awesome to watch. Now, this next part, maybe it's minor stuff, but Jonathan Kent holds up a newspaper that reports that Lex was acquitted of double homicide charges. That implies that the charges against him were solid enough to take him to trial, 
at which time he beat the charges. All of this apparently happens in just a few days, and I find that a little hard to believe. I think that somebody meant to say that the charges against Lex had been dropped. That seems to be the more likely explanation, given that they would have had Shannon, the killer, in custody, and she had the means, motive, and opportunity to do the job. Plus, it's unlikely that Lex strapped himself to a chair and tried to light his own office on fire just to implicate Shannon. Now, I'll talk about some more real-world ramifications later, because to me that's a separate issue. Because, honestly, I... I view this as more of an example of a poor choice of words than a a literal summary of literal events. Somebody was just asleep at the wheel and they used the wrong words. So, at least in my opinion, there's nothing more to it than that. Still, the scene with Clark, Jonathan, and Martha in the kitchen towards the end reinforces Clark's pattern of behavior lately. He's more prone to taking rash courses of action now. Here in Bound... Clark trusts Lionel at least enough to work with him to prove Lex's innocence. And he did it without consulting his parents. Think about that for just a second. Let that sink in. Clark made the choice on his own, back in facade, to join the football team. Later, he took matters into his own hands in jinx by going out onto the football field, winning the game, and also saving Chloe's life. And also in the bargain, shutting down Mix's Pitalik for good. And he did a kind of similar thing back in Spell by tracking the witches back to the Kawachi Caves. At each step along the way, and this is my point, at each step along the way, Clark took a very individualistic approach to handling crisis situations. Clark's becoming more independent as he goes along. But Bound's different. This is no ordinary crisis situation. In the first place, nobody's life is in immediate danger here. Not yet, anyway. If a murder had taken place, the body was cold by the time Clark got the news. He had no way to save her. And if Lex did it? Well, offhand, I don't know if Kansas even has the death penalty, but... If Lex is guilty, it's not Clark's business to save him from execution for his crimes. On top of all that, who's to say the police wouldn't have eventually exonerated Lex anyway? Here's the thing. Clark got involved anyway. Due process may have eventually worked to save Lex. And so Clark didn't need, necessarily, to do anything about this, but he did anyway. And besides that, he accepted help from Lionel Luther in order to do it. Just a few episodes ago, in case any of you have forgotten, Lionel showed just how ruthless and evil he really is. Morally speaking, Clark would have been within his rights to spit in Lionel's face, walk away, and never look back. But he not only gave Lionel the time of day, he allowed him to help help the investigation into Lex's frame-up for those phony murders. And on top of all that, he trusted Lionel without consulting the Kents. This is huge. The last time Clark trusted Lionel with jack shit, it was back in Memoria from the Mighty Season 3. And Clark 
paid the price for trusting the wrong guy in that case. But here, he not only potentially repeats the same mistake, he does it without consulting his parents. The difference in Bound, though, is Clark was on his guard against Lionel. He never gave Lionel a chance to get the upper hand, and he trusted Lionel only to the degree that his information checked out. What we're seeing here is Clark showing a shrewdness that Jonathan will never be capable of. Even more than Clark, Jonathan wears his emotions on his sleeve. He says what he means, means what he says, and he never backs down from anybody. Clark's discovered that there's a time and a place to speak your mind. But, and this is crucial, there's also a time and a place to be objective and let the facts lead you to the truth instead of declaring what you believe to be the truth in advance and then searching for facts to back yourself up. Jonathan wouldn't let himself ever be objective about this, but Clark realizes being objective is the only way to find out what really happened. Now, superficially, Clark appears to be taking the same risk and bound that he did in Memoria. But as I say, Clark went into this meeting with Lionel here in Bound with his eyes wide open. Back in Memoria, he was acting to protect his secret. He was emotionally compromised, and he paid the price for it. To put it all another way, Clark's able to put his emotions and his fears and all of his other bullshit aside right here in Bound. He wasn't able to do that in Memoria, and that is ultimately what makes the difference here. So what I'm saying is, for as morally inco-fucking-herent as Bound is, the character dynamics are rock-solid. As a complete side note, Kobe Smulders plays Shannon in this episode. You may remember her from uh, Avengers, where she played Maria Hill. Now, don't get me wrong about any of this. I see some positives and upsides to Bound. It's not all bad. But the crisscrossed, incomprehensible morality of this episode detracts from everything else. The fact that this episode is part of a dreaded season where Lana dates a high school coach doesn't do much to clarify on the moral stands that Bound is trying to make. Still, this episode's important to the dreaded season four, not just for the stuff that I've talked about up to this point, but also in that it introduces Genevieve Teague into the proceedings. As she's one of this season's big bad, big bads, that's important. It's even suggested that Genevieve may have somehow set Jason up with Lana without either of them ever realizing it. Also, as I've gone to pains to express, we see the first fruits of Lionel's conversion, and it'll, it'll only get bigger from here on in. All of this is to say that Bound isn't an episode that you can skip. So even if the main plot is just a standalone character piece for Lex, and it is, the B and C plots are of such vital importance for what comes later that Bound is kind of, sort of, mandatory viewing. So the best you can try for here is to just grit your teeth and hash through it the best you can. I say all this because I remember the feeling I had after I finished watching this morally incomprehensible mess of a show. 
You see, up to that point, every episode of Smallville that I'd seen added something. Whether it, it, it was good character development, or it was just a fun and exciting episode, or it was a fucking tear-jerking tragedy like Memoria, or whatever else, almost every episode of Smallville had something to offer. Bound is the moment when that began to noticeably change for me. Now, even the greatest TV shows in history had some really bad moments. Even classic shows like MASH, Seinfeld, Buffy, or whatever else you care to mention. Every TV show, sooner or later, turns out some major clunkers. But somehow, the first three seasons of Smallville, and the first bunch of episodes of the dreaded fourth season, had me convinced that somehow... Smallville was going to beat the odds. You see, back then, we all assumed that Smallville was going to end after Season 5. The dreaded Season 4 had started off strongly before Spell came along, and that convinced me that somehow Goff and Miller were going to manage to put together what amounted to a 110-episode miniseries with literally no problems, no glitches, no malfunctions, no clunkers, or, or whatever else. Spell proved that for as, good and, uh, for as good as Goff and Miller were with this series, they're still only human. Even they could make unwise decisions. But Bound proved that Spell wasn't an isolated incident. Further, Bound suggested that it may not be all sunshine and roses that lay ahead for the dreaded fourth season. Or hell, for the entire rest of the series. People, I was scared. I was really scared for Smallville's future after Bound. Which is about as good a segue as anybody uh, could hope for into Scare, Episode 10. Basically, a kryptonite hallucinogenic compound gives some characters a very good look at their darkest fears. That's the franchise of the episode, really. And that leads right into the deeper themes and implications of it all right up front. First up, there's Jason. His deepest fear is that Lana will become scared of him and then leave him for Clark. That's about the level of depth and sophistication I expect from just about any of Lana's love interests in this era of the show, so... I guess points for consistent characterization there. Chloe's worst nightmare is that she'll be just as batshit fucking crazy as her mother and end up in the nut house too. Chloe's not finished with this little subplot either. We're gonna see this again before too long. Next comes Lana. She fears that everybody she loves is gonna leave her and die. Interestingly... The people in her vision were her parents, Chloe, Jason, and herself. Where this leaves Clark, Jonathan, Martha, and Lex is anybody's guess. So, basically, Lana's deepest fears are more or less what you'd expect. After that, it's Clark's turn. He dreams of a second meteor shower wrecking shop on Smallville and hurting the people that he loves. If a second meteor shower ever comes to Smallville, why, all that death and carnage would be Clark's fault. But hey, 
What are the odds of that? Finally, Lex faces his fears. He sees himself as President of the United States where he orders nuclear destruction. Finally, he sees himself happily standing atop a mountain of bones and skulls. What's interesting here is that Cassandra saw parts of this in Lex's future way back in Hourglass from Season 1. She didn't see the nuclear devastation. That's part of Lex's fear. But what Cassandra saw in Lex's future is him becoming the president and standing amidst a field of bones and death. But, and I have to emphasize this, she did not see the nuclear missile stuff. I'll deal with this much more later on during the show's run, though. As to the, nu- uh, the nuclear missile launch sequence, though, those shots were taken from Terminator 3 and repurposed for Smallville. I say that only to say that this isn't going to be the last time that Smallville does something like this. Something else is that when Lionel meets with the Warden, he uses very religious language to describe what he's been doing in prison. And to me, this brings up Lionel's rehabilitation from transference. I'm going to read between a lot of lines here, so bear with me. Lionel's quoted the Bible on many occasions in Smallville's run. And if I'm not mistaken, he's got more Bible quotations coming in his future. Back in Stray from Season 1, Lionel mentions that Julian was found dead, or sorry, Lex mentions that Julian was found dead the morning of his baptism. So, I'm going to suggest to you that whatever morality he's shown up to now and will show in the future, Lionel was raised a Christian. My best guess is he was either a Catholic or an Episcopalian. And it would appear that he raised Lex in that same environment. I'm also going to suggest to you that Lionel, for now at least, views his transformation in religious terms. Now, if you disagree with that, look, whatever. This is my analysis, not yours. And this is how I think Lionel has interpreted his new outlook on life. Whether or not that's true, that is to say whether or not Lionel's religion is true, that isn't the point. It's what Lionel thinks. And that's all I'm saying. On that basis, Lionel doesn't view his release from prison as a good thing. Number one, it's where he belongs. And number two, it's where he's needed. But the warden tells him that this isn't some hotel where you can come and go as you please. Lionel will be released. Period. End of story. Still, Lionel makes an odd statement in all this. He says that he's committed several crimes. Not the ones that he was imprisoned for, but several others. And unless I'm missing something here, that ain't true. In the Mighty Season 3 episode, Truth, Lionel confessed to Chloe that he was guilty of ordering his parents' murder. Chloe had the power to compel just about anyone to tell her the truth. At that moment, she was more powerful and effective than sodium pentothal. And he was later sent to prison specifically for murdering his parents. So, claiming innocent now, innocence now is either a lie that Lionel told to the warden, 
or else it's a bit of a discontinuity on the part of Kelly Souders and Brian Peterson, the writers of this episode. And honestly, I tend to think that somebody goofed because first, Lionel truly is guilty of murder. And second, he's unlikely to lie about that to the warden considering his new outlook on life. So, to me, the most likely explanation here is that Souders and Peterson just goofed. It happens. No big deal. In any case, Lionel's release from prison is arranged by somebody who obviously has a lot more power and influence than he does. That person is Genevieve Teague. Remember how I said I'm not protecting against spoilers this season? Well, I wasn't fucking around. In any case, there's no reveal of that here. Lionel's benefactor is never shown on screen. That's saved for a future episode, but let's cut the shit. Who else was it ever going to be? What? Lionel just happens to get released from prison shortly after Genevieve comes to town? Come on, you already knew who it was. I didn't spoil anything. What I won't spoil, though, is the exact nature of their history together. And that's because it relates to future seasons. What I can say, though, is that this wasn't a random act of kindness. Hell, it wasn't even a random act of manipulation. Genevieve knew what she was doing in getting Lionel out of prison. Now, what I can talk about here is the Stones. Obviously, they're a major part of this season. Lex isn't the only one who's looking for him. The Teagues are searching for the Stones as well. And again, this isn't just plot convenience at work. There's history to this, and it'll be explored in seasons still to come. But for now, the Stones are the main agenda driving everything else here. Something else is Lex's outrage over the Fear Toxin Project. Lionel commissioned it ages ago as a weapon to be used in warfare. Basically, it goes like this. Gas the opposing side, make them confront their worst fears, and then put them down. You don't even need to use weapons. Lex doesn't want to hear it, though. Innocent people are suffering and are lapsing into comas. Lex's morality may have slipped quite a lot since the first season, but he's still in a place where he doesn't give a damn what the financial possibilities are for this toxin. He's concerned about the people. Now, there are obvious real-world uh, complications that go with something like that. Me thinks that would be considered germ warfare, and very possibly a weapon of mass destruction. Smallville's becoming less and less bound by real-world laws and rules and politics with, with each passing season, so the interpretive difficulties of the United, uh, of the United States military actually being able to use the fear gas is beside the point now. Smallville's quickly becoming a pre-crisis, science fairy tale world where society, morality, law, politics, and everything else are changing from what we relate to in our real world and becoming something more fantasy-oriented. I mention all of this to say that as the tone of the series transitions, we shouldn't expect Smallville to abide by all of our notions of reality. The balance started slipping seasons ago, and it'll slip further before this is all said and done. These things aren't flaws. They're part of the stylistic presentation of the show now. If you expect hard, gritty realism from your comic book media, 
Smallville will become an ever greater disappointment as we go along. But if you're willing to accept the pre-crisis notion of Superman's mere presence on Earth ultimately changing the world, Smallville's just what the doctor ordered for you. Now, kind of related to that, as I said before, Clark gets dosed with the fear toxin. Unlike the other victims, though, he snaps out of it. He's the only one to do so. He zips over to Lex's research facility and volunteers his body and blood if it'll help save the people who've been poisoned. Now, there's some religious stuff going there, but apart from pointing out that it exists, I probably shouldn't comment on that too much, except to repeat, Clark offered his body and blood to save other people. So, read into that whatever you want. But instead of getting too far into that, I'm going to focus on Clark's sense of self-sacrifice here. He didn't create the lab. He didn't engineer the fear toxin. He's not the one who caused the leak. He's not solely responsible for the spread. He didn't knowingly contribute to the spread. Basically, none of this is Clark's fault. But he still steps up to the plate and risks giving up his secret. That thing that he's protected more fiercely than anything else in this entire series? He's prepared to turn his back on a normal social life, any kind of risky activity, and love to protect his privacy. He's willing to risk anything to save innocent people. Now, cooler heads prevail here. Even if there's something inside of Clark that can be used to fight the fear toxin, and even if that can be harnessed from him, the research procedures on it would take months, if not years, to perfect. Clark's suggestion is admirable and uh, self-sacrificial, but it's ultimately too inefficient. It has no hope of working. Logistics alone are the reason Clark was able to keep his secret. If there had been any way to do the job in just a few hours, he would have kissed his anonymity goodbye, and he knew it. But he was still willing to give up his privacy to save people, and I think that says a lot about Clark's maturity at this stage in the game. That's good information for the viewer to have, because we'll be calling Clark's judgment into question in just a few episodes. Other stuff. I usually don't try to apply reason and logic to Jason and Lana's relationship, because there's really not much reasonable about it. They're just together for parallel story construction. The easiest way to show that Lana's moved on after she and Clark broke up in the Mighty Season 3 is to give her a new boyfriend. Separately, the villains of the piece need to be given an access point into this season's plot. So, on that basis, Jason Teague kills two birds with one stone. He can be Lana's new boyfriend, and also one of this season's villains. Easy peasy. Still, he's considering leaving her because he doesn't like who he's becoming. And I guess women still fall for that. I'm just, honestly, I'm just surprised that it worked coming from a clean-cut dude like Jensen Ackles. Then again, Lana's been around the world, but she really hasn't been around the block. So, I guess obvious tricks like that, maybe they would work on her. I don't know. Anyway. The episode ends with Chloe not only confessing her deepest fear to Clark, but admitting that she tracked her mother down and found out that she's in a nuthouse because of hereditary mental problems. Uh, 
So, as with Chloe's dream, there's a real chance she might not be too far behind her mother in getting fitted for a straitjacket. Chloe brought it all up to say that she felt lonely and isolated having to carry that secret around with her, but it sure felt good to share it with Clark. Now he knows her secret. She knows he can be trusted with it, and she doesn't feel so alone anymore. Several chickens are coming home to roost in future episodes, and since it's not such a long wait, I'll keep the aftermath of it to myself. This one time. Anyway. Episode 11. Unsafe. Alicia Baker comes back to Smallville, supposedly cured of her craziness and insanity and her nut jobbery. She then proceeds to dose Clark with red kryptonite, sucker him into Vegas where they have a drive through wedding, and then eventually, Clark shakes off the red kryptonite. I'll be honest. I kind of like how this episode starts. I mean, let's face it. Clark makes good grades. He was the quarterback for the football team. He's got a scholarship to Met U, and he's a good-looking guy. He's somebody that girls at Smallville would and should be interested in. Unsafe's teaser addresses that. It's safe to assume that Clark's handled this sort of thing before, but it's still nice to see it. This ties in with Clark and Chloe's conversation at the Torch and Scare. Clark can't let anybody get close to him because of his secret. Sure would be nice if he could hang out with someone without that getting in the way, though. And that's basically Crazy Alicia's cue to come back to Smallville. Except, she's maybe not so Glenn Close scary anymore. Maybe she really is cured. I mean... The doctor let her out of Bell Reef for a reason, right? Surely everything must be up must be on the up and up with Alicia. Right? Or maybe not. Maybe she'll decide to leave Smallville and offer Clark the chance to come with her. And if he won't come willingly, she'll just have to drug him with red kryptonite and force him to. Obviously, one of the driving themes of this episode is young women wanting, shall we say, physical intimacy for all the wrong reasons. It comes out that Chloe boffed some dork in a bow tie that I'm sure we're never going to see on this show back when she was an intern at the Daily Planet. Lana wants to boff Jason so he'll come back to Smallville and be with her. She wants the wrong thing for the right reasons. Jason himself has to tell her that. This has to come from mutual love and acceptance, not because one person has an agenda for the other. Jason still accepts Lana. They just keep their clothes on. Speaking of which, Alicia wants Clark in the sack so that he'll accept her. And as I said, she used red kryptonite in order to do it. Clark hasn't been this violated and taken advantage of since Memoria. This is a betrayal the likes of which Clark's never experienced. I mean, look, you expect shit like this from Lionel Luther in The Mighty Season 3, but someone who supposedly loves Clark would accept and respect his boundaries, wouldn't she? But Alicia didn't. Clark made a decision that she didn't like, and she used his weakness against him to get what she wanted. 
She not only ran from her problems like Clark did back in Season 2, but she dragged Clark along for the ride. And while you're thinking about that, think about this. None of it would have happened if Clark had just done what his parents had told him to do and kept away from Alicia. He knowingly invited someone unstable into his life. She then did what she does best. She took advantage of his vulnerabilities. Now, it was nothing so serious as attempted murder this time around, but this is a very different kind of betrayal. You can get medications and therapy for what Alicia did back in Obsession from the Mighty Third Season, because that kind of thing can be dealt with. What Alicia did in Unsafe isn't because of her mental problems. This is her true character coming out. Even when she's completely sane, Alicia's still devious and manipulative. Clark overruled all of that, though, because, let's face it, he's lonely. He wanted someone to be close to, even if it was the wrong someone. Everything that happens to Clark and Unsafe springs from that one bad decision. And on the one hand, who can blame Clark for wanting to have somebody to talk to? But Clark has powers and vulnerabilities, and those things carry a major responsibility. He's not like other people. When he attempts to live as carelessly as other people do, it always comes back to bite him in the ass because... Let's cut this shit. Clark is not like other people. Still, Alicia took a bullet for Clark. And not because she thought the bullet would have hurt him, but because she knew the bullet wouldn't. And because it wouldn't, that would be the end of Clark's secret. So yes, nobody's ever betrayed Clark the way that Alicia did, but nobody's ever taken a bullet for him, knowing his uh, secret either. So I guess credit where credit to do. This is one of the few times when Martha has taken on a parental role with Clark. She's always been a mother to him, but this is a rare case where Martha has had to lecture Clark and explain the facts of life to him. She's not here to express a mother's joy that her son put down some meteor freak. She's here to tell him that he completely fucked up. Start to finish, front to back, top to bottom, side to side, everywhere in between. Clark royally fucked up in this episode. There was never a time when Clark was in danger of making the right decisions at any point and unsafe. Everything, starting, from, starting with first hanging out with Alicia again, to what came later on, was an inexcusable mistake on Clark's part. This isn't a case where Clark threw a, a party while Jonathan and Martha were out of town. He risked himself, his safety, his secret, everything. He bet on the wrong horse and he lost in a big bad way. Like I say, it's rare for Martha to show such disappointment and disapproval. But there's nothing positive to say about Clark's actions in Unsafe. Now, fuck. Now I guess I'm now I guess I'm just beating this thing to death. But when the credits roll for unsafe, you need to understand something, people. Clark has learned nothing. I say this because Clark takes Alicia back at the end of the episode. Now, 
Originally, this is where I planned to end the episode, but because episode 12, Pariah, is the more logical place to do that, here we go. Clark's still dating Alicia, even though she's been accused of attacking, uh, of attacking Lana and Jason. But that's preposterous. When has Alicia ever attacked anybody? When has Alicia ever attacked Lana and her boyfriend? Oh, wait. Anyway, Lana pretty much loses her shit over it when Clark brings Alicia to the Talon for karaoke night. And honestly, who can blame her? Usually, Lana's the most vapid and annoying character on this entire show. So isn't something rotten in Denmark if she brings up a fair and logical point? If someone tries to stab me to death, I probably wouldn't want to hang out with, it, with them again either. Anyway. Deeper themes and implications. There's a bit to choose from here. First off, even after promising she wouldn't reveal Clark's secret to anybody back in Unsafe, Alicia reveals Clark's secret to Chloe and Pariah. With an unintentional assist from Lois, Chloe makes the choice to keep it to herself. As with Pete, this doesn't get swept under the rug and forgotten about. Chloe knows Clark's secret, and it's permanent. But there's another layer here. Lois tells Chloe that people keep secrets for a reason. Finding out about one doesn't necessarily make telling that person you know their secret a good idea. They may have had a damn good reason for keeping their mouths shut. Nothing will be helped if you tell them you know the truth. It's interesting because Chloe runs with that logic for the rest of this season. With one minor exception, Chloe never tells Clark she's in the know about his powers. Now, don't get me wrong... Every once in a while, Chloe's going to make sneaky and ambiguous comments just to needle Clark. And other times, she can help cover for him. So when you think about it like that, in an odd kind of way, Chloe does what Pete Ross used to do in the old pre-crisis comics. Clark never knew that Pete discovered his secret identity. But comic book Pete did that very thing, and for the same reasons that Lois gives Chloe, comic book Pete kept Clark's secret to himself, but every once in a while, he would do things to give Clark excuses to run off, change clothes, and save the day. Other times, he might invent excuses for Clark to, just to cover for Clark's random disappearances. But the other issue here is that this advice came from Lois. Now, I don't want to spoil ahead, that is to say beyond the dreaded season four, Except to say that we should remember that it was Lois that gave Chloe this advice. And so for the time being, Chloe decides to sit on Clark's secret. But now that she knows at least some of the truth, she makes a point of telling Clark, first, that she'll be there for him, and second, she's basically sneaking in her solidarity. In a way that wasn't really possible before, Clark and Chloe are now in this thing for the long haul. They just don't know it yet. Still, it's interesting that this is the first time that Chloe's ever expressed remorse for starting the Wall of Weird. All she wanted was to figure out just what the fuck was happening in Smallville. She was arguably the first person to really become aware of the weird 
unexplained, fucked up things that happen in Smallville. And if you remember the pilot, even Pete was skeptical about it at first. But Chloe pursued it anyway because she believed in it. And because, when you come right down to it, she wants the truth. Whatever that may be. So for her to show any kind of regret over the wall of weird and the part she played in first bringing meteor freaks to the mainstream, this is a big thing for her. She's shown remorse for violating Clark's boundaries. And she's even been afraid of... Uh, been afraid because Lionel uh, threatened her for jeopardizing Lex's life. But this is the first time she's ever really taken stock of the human cost of her meteor freak crusade. And it's the first time she's openly criticized her own work. And just think, Lois is the one who gives Chloe a pep talk about it. Lois may not even be completely comfortable with it herself yet, but she's cut from the same cloth as Chloe here. It's taken longer for Lois to find her calling, and arguably she hasn't found it even yet. But she and Chloe are similar, in almost every way. Another interesting thing is that people with meteor powers are officially common knowledge. Alicia Baker is the one who finally gets it all out there. So, not only does, does she spill Clark's secret to Chloe, she's also the one who put meteor freaks into the mainstream. She also wants Chloe's help in making Clark's secret mainstream. She suckers Clark into a phony rescue so that Chloe can witness him use some of his abilities. Understandably, Chloe's freaked out, but, as I say, she ultimately decides to keep her mouth shut about it. Clark has a showdown with Tim later on. A few interesting things here. First, Tim puts up a decent fight. Now, Clark's had worse, don't get me wrong, but Tim makes a good accounting of himself. Second, Clark's natural temptation is to twist Tim's head right off his shoulders. He's that pissed off. This motherfucker killed Alicia. All she wanted was a chance at a normal life, and he killed her for it. Third, Clark doesn't kill Tim. He wants to. Ooh, he wants to so bad he can taste it. But he doesn't do it. Of all people, Lois talks him down. But keep in mind, Clark has more than enough power to crush Tim's neck, rip his head off, or do pretty much anything else. He's already resolved not to kill Tim. All Lois really did was give him the final push with his self-control and get him to calm down. But fourth, Clark not only wins the fight, he not only fights smart by using his heat vision, but he overcomes his grief and his anger in order to do it. Clark's about as emotionally compromised as anybody can be at that moment. He's overwhelmed by the pain of losing Alicia, but he's able to compartmentalize at least long enough to win the fight, and then the other factors come into, uh, come into play, especially the lowest factor. I say this because I don't think Clark would have necessarily been able to put his anger aside long enough to win a fight back in, I don't know, season one. Now, apart from all that, at one, uh, at one point, Tim and Lois check out a scale model of the town of Smallville, circa 1988, before the meteor shower. Honestly, 
I think it looks fucking awesome, and I'd love to own a model of this version of Smallville just like that. You don't see much of it as they go through the scene, but man oh man, the glimpses of it you do get look fucking cool. Something else. Tim Westcott, the villain of the piece, is played by Derek Hamilton. Now, usual disclaimer here. Most of the time, talking too much about the acting is above my pay grade. And for that, I'm sorry, folks. But still, it's tough to figure out who's got more screws loose between Tim and Alicia. There's this little bit in Alicia's barn where Tim pretty much confesses to everything. And a fucking psycho repeats some of the stuff he told Lois, and he just he has this, this way about him. He starts telling Alicia that Smallville used to be such a nice little town, but then she interrupts him. He, makes his, he just makes his face, and it's gold. Hamilton's delivery, his face, his eyes, he says everything in a sort of nonchalant but nostalgic kind of way. I mean, Tim's a fucking lunatic, and Derek Hamilton just sells that, you know? So he's a good actor. Oh yeah, another thing. Um, Mark Snow, he devised a neat little theme for Alicia. Now, if I'm not mistaken... We heard a little bit of that back in, in Obsession from the Mighty Season 3, but it's more refined here. It's this sort of fast but melancholy piano thing, and it pops up several times throughout the episode. Now, maybe I don't like Alicia very much, but I can't fault the music uh, in this episode for anything. So... You look like a big cat in a small cage. I guess it's the thought that counts. It's a pretty ugly thought. Where were you last night? I was wondering if you were ever gonna call me again. Why? Lana's boyfriend was attacked. Glad you're finally home. What are you doing? Oh, I'm... I'm just looking for evidence to leave at the next murder. With you. Everyone thinks that I'm guilty because of you. You are guilty. I mean, this, this really used to be such a nice little town. You don't understand what you've done. Even Clark thinks that I'm guilty. I'm not getting... No! I already have. So that's that. Anyway... So I think, I think we're pretty much at the, uh, the end of this batch of episodes, and as it happens, we're now beyond the halfway point of the dreaded season four. And so, the way that I paced things out, we've only got three more entries left in the dreaded season four retrospective. After that, we can move on to better, bigger, better and bigger things that are better than the dreaded season four, so... Anyway, so I think that's pretty much that, but at least for right now, I'm worn out, I'm gonna go get a cheeseburger. Bye, everybody. See you next week.
Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is, and we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And... You know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like season two of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. <laughs> the show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of Bailitude. And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailitude.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. We all remember seeing years ago those futuristic drawings saying what the future is going to be. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails. This is the future. That was all started by a mountain. Twice the size of Manhattan. We want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Walt Disney World. Better than any other urban environment in America. Two True Freaks proudly presents... We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels... Earning My Ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. 
with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>